It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. Jason, have you ever been a fan or participant in April Fool's Day? Mm-hmm. I feel like there's been some work stuff in the past, like pranks at work. Really? Yeah, years ago, like... I remember vaguely one time a boss of mine years ago when I worked in the advertising industry or something, having sending out some email about it was kind of cruel about us all getting raises or something. No. <laughs> I have a vague remembrance of this. I think I kind of blocked it out because it was so like, really? It's also kind of nice when you work for someone who has that sense of humor, but it's also a little bit cruel. Yeah. But I personally... Have you ever played a really good April Fool's joke on someone? I haven't. Even as a kid? No, not that I can recall. It's never been, no. Your example that you gave is a really good one because it's a very uncomfortable April Fool's joke. Sometimes they're really funny. Sometimes they fall completely flat and might be even like offensive. Yes. And sometimes they're just really awkward because they're not good. It's a crapshoot, I think. It's so interesting, too, because you've seen over the years companies try to capitalize on April Fool's Day and come out with like crazy things like Netflix, I know has done a few. Actually, maybe I'll look it up right now. I think maybe Apple, some brands have done really good jobs and some have done like kind of lame jobs. Let's say like best April Fool's pranks. <laughs> uh, but you can't think of any from being a kid? No. Hmm. I was never like a prankster. That was not my the way that I got my kicks. You know what I mean? Mm. I wasn't really like that type of kid. I wasn't really like a prankster per se. So were you ever somebody that would like put an insect on, make somebody think that there's like a giant spider, but it's like a rubber spider. Like when I pulled up best April fool's pranks, that's like the first thing that came up. And that kind of sounds dumb. What a rubber spider. Yeah. Like trying to think that some, there's like some insect. A lot of them are kind of late. Like to me, what bothers me about April fool's, pranks is when they're stupid well can like we, just like lame stuff can like, we come talk on, about get, something get creative can we talk about something though that i'm curious about with all of this what is it in the human psyche that feels the need prank people <laughs> well it's it's kind of like psychologically torturing them a little bit for our own really if you think about it it's kind of like psychologically torturing someone for our own enjoyment a it little is. bit. And I use the word torture because I can't think of a better word, and I know that's an extreme word, but really is what it is, is I'm going to intentionally m- manipulate or shock or surprise you with something. Or scare or somebody. Or scare you because it's going to give me pleasure. That's right. kind of a strange thing to identify about us as humans, isn't it? It when is. you think about it on a psychological level, but why do we feel the need to do that? It is really interesting, actually, because right? I don't think that. about that. What is it? Yeah, there's something that we really enjoy about watching people get scared or hurt themselves. Like America's Funniest Home Videos and Jackass and like a lot of these successful television shows and memes, online accounts have been really successful with kind of torturing people. 
torture humor. I don't but know you and better... I also really loved that one of that guy falling down the escalator. We've brought escalator. that up multiple times now. Because, <laughs> but, it also, but also the reason that I think it was funny is because he wasn't actually hurt. Well, that's but that's the point of and... all of these is that if, as long as you don't actually harm somebody, it can be funny. What about whoopee cushions? Oh, I did, did that to think... my mom once. Yeah, I did. For I actually, April Fools? No, no, no. Just, just in general. Okay, I, and how did she react? Um, I was really young. I can't remember. I, I don't. She wasn't like laughing with me. She wasn't angry. It was just kind of one of those things. I only did it once. Yeah. Yep. I just pulled up this list on on boardpanda.com. Oh, uh, board panda. And there's some pretty good ones. You might appreciate this one, Jason. One of them is called the Chewbacca Roar Contest. I don't really understand how this is a prank. Like, Chewbacca Roar There's contest. like a sign that says Chewbacca Roar Contest Reward $50. <laughs> <laughs> call this number and leave a voicemail with your best impersonation. Maybe the prank is that the number you call is somebody who doesn't actually know that this is happening. <laughs> and they're just getting a tone of phone calls. With people. <laughs> They're just getting that. Can you imagine? They're That's a pretty good one. Oh, thanks. The, I've been working no, on it No, I mean, while. like, the prank is good. Oh, like, my Chewbacca impression was not good. <laughs> no, oh. no, no. Your impression was, <laughs> your impression was good? pretty good. But I think that's a pretty good prank. See, I like clever pranks like that. The other one that I've appreciated, it's getting kind of old now, but I've seen it go around on TikTok, is when somebody takes two phones and puts the speakers next to each other and then calls two separate numbers. And so neither party understands what's happening. And they're like, hey, why did you call me? And then the other person's like, I didn't call you. You called me. And they're like, no, I didn't. You just listen to their conversation. But the funniest examples of that are when they'll call like two pizza restaurants. And it'll be like, oh, Pizza Hut may take your order. And they're like, yeah, what, what would you like your order? And it just goes That's on ridiculous. and on. And they start to get really annoyed with That's each other. Ridiculous. Those can be kind of funny. See, but that's what I mean, though. It's just so fascinating from an anthropological perspective. I would love to know the history of this in terms of... Okay. I mean, because here's the thing. Certainly, we have been engaging in comedy and humor and drama and theater in human civilization for a long time now. Mm -hmm. But this idea of pranking people or fooling people, I wonder what the etymology and the history of this is. Well, we are going to find out from one of the best sources because I just found an article on history.com which is a very reputable source of it's about it's about the history april of april fools go day. for it okay so tell me about and it hit me with it's it it's also called all fools day i feel like you would appreciate this word cuz you like to call people fool you call me fool you call your dog fool i'm just trying to channel my inner mr t oh when i do that okay. my my inspiration for that fyi anybody who knows me where i'm like come on fool I do it almost like as a playful like term of endearment. I didn't actually know Is that's it? why you said well, yeah, that so yeah, much. Yeah, because that was one of Mr. T's catchphrases, right? Well, Pity the fool. I know that, but yeah, I didn't realize fooled. that that's where that came from. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. the, the etymology See? of my use of fool goes back to Mr. T. Learning lots of things. All right. So some historians speculate that April Fool's Day goes back to 1582 when France switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. Okay. People who were slow, <laughs> people, come on, there's a big ad popping up. People who were slow to get the news or failed to recognize that the start of the new year had moved to January 1st and continued to celebrate it during the last week of March through April 1st became the butt of jokes and hoaxes. These pranks included having paper fish placed on their backs and being referred to as 
as April fish, said to symbolize a young, easily caught fish in a gullible person. Okay. So because someone didn't get the memo that the calendar changed, <laughs> they decided to publicly humiliate yep. them? That is a That's fascinating that origin. Like, right? That is a fascinating origin. Oh, you didn't get the memo that we changed to Gregorian, did you? Huh? Well, Jean-Luc, who's the ass now? <laughs> like should've, that's, You should have done that in a French they say, accent. They say, you didn't get the memo that we changed to the Gregorian calendar, Jean-Luc. Oh, 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 who is LeFou now? Who is LeFou? <laughs> like, that's mean. That's We're good. mean. Like, I'm just going to go out and say this. We are mean as a species. We really are. Like, you, like I remember growing up with in school and being like, as a kid, like, not all kids, but I remember having that thought as a kid, like being teased and picked on by other kids. Like, you fuckers are mean. Yep. Like, and I, it's it, culturally acceptable to be mean too, which is interesting. And we have, it is. We have this one day a year. And then it also makes me think of, on a more extreme end, The Purge. Did we watch that movie together? Yeah. Did, the Purge. Yeah. Of course. Did we watch it yeah, together? I don't know, kind of, but it seems like a movie you and I might have seen. Why did that come together. up for you in this context? Well, because it's similar, because The Purge is that based on this content, based on this idea that, one day a year or whatever it is. Oh, we get to murder people. Yeah. And it's like we need one day a year to play all these pranks on people. We're allowed to do that. We're allowed to like let our inner meanness. It's like very culturally acceptable. And then we also have like this extreme in the fictional extreme of people. I think the purge isn't necessarily. Is it just specifically about murder? Or is it just like you can do whatever you want and you're not going to be punished for it? Mm, I thought that's what the concept was. It wasn't necessarily that you got to kill people. It's no, like, I don't think you can loot and break stuff and just, I don't think that was, mm, I don't recall that part of the movie. I thought it was just killing I mean, people. And who even came up with that idea? Well, it makes sense though, because the analogy you're saying is, we need it's an kind of, outlet we, need or we out, want, we, yes, we want one. Exactly. We don't need it. But. And so the, the idea in the purge was if you let people unlock their deepest, most primal urges, violent urges, that it will quell those urges for the rest of the year. So and in I this context... If April Fool's kind of has gone yeah. on all this time. Historians have also linked it to festivals that were celebrated in ancient Rome or the vernal equinox, the first day of spring, when Mother Nature fooled people with changing unpredictable weather. Okay. It started to spread throughout Britain during the 18th century in Scotland the tradition became a two-day event, starting with something called the hunting, hunting the gawk, in which people were sent on phony errands and followed by tally day, which involved pranks played on people's derrieres, such as pinning fake tails or kick me signs on them. Oh, that makes sense. I mean, this is actually pretty fascinating. In modern times, people have gone to great lengths to celebrate April Fool's Day hoaxes. Newspapers, radio, and TV stations and websites have participated, reporting outrageous fictional claims that have fooled their audiences. You know, what's also interesting about April Fool's is that some people, I think, look forward to being fooled. Like, they're hoping that somebody is going to fool them. Well, so there's two things that I've noticed in the food industry, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but especially the past five to seven years, is every year there are outlets like Veg News yeah. and also other food companies that will say like, hey, guess what? Beyond Meat is announcing what they would do something this year, probably something like whole roasted vegan pig. And like they'd have like, instead of packaged meat, they'd have like, you could buy like a vegan, like giant, you know, something like that, that was so outrageous, but almost believable. Yep almost believable but still outrageous yeah so that's what i'm looking forward to in the food industry is they get pretty creative with that stuff some year 
Yep, for sure. They get I just, pretty creative. I just pulled up an article from Vox.com. Yeah. We'll link to all of this in the show notes at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And it's actually a very in-depth article. I thought it was going to be like a BuzzFeed list style, but it's like a very traditionally formatted article on this website. And so you have to scan it a little bit. Remember, uh, this must have been last year in 2019 when a company announced that they were going to be making cauliflower milk. Oh, God, right. That was pretty good. Right, right. Cauliflower like, I like milk. things like that because actually I remember seeing that and totally believing it and also not being surprised whatsoever. Not at all. Because A, cauliflower is a hot ingredient. B, I'm like, oh, you could milk cauliflower. Maybe they blended it with something and turned like it's totally plausible. Totally plausible. Right. And I was actually kind of looking forward to That's it. That's what I mean. I was like, oh, I'd track. I w- you know what? I would mess with cauliflower milk. I That's would. I-, I would. I totally would. <laughs> totally would. Ooh, you would like this one, Jason. The New York City Police Department engaged in prank day by announcing a new feline unit. Officer McFluff <laughs> has, according to a tweet from the official Twitter account, already sniffed out an amazing drug bust. Officer McFluff. Ooh, I wonder if there's a picture that Officer went along with that. Fluff. I bet it's going to look a lot like my cat Claudia, who's very cloudy. Looks a little bit more like like Figaro. Figaro? But oh. yeah, they dressed a cat up in a police in uniform. A pl- <laughs> so, can we link to that in the show <laughs> Well, it's notes. in this Vox article. You there's, can tell this. It's uh, a whole list of all these great pranks. You guys can tell this episode in particular is probably our most serious one yet. There's even... An interesting reference here to BMW, who started doing April Fool's pranks in the 1980s. Oh. Starting with the announcement of a rain-deflecting open top car in a fake magazine ad in 1983. Fake news features and cars were announced every year that decade. You That's don't remember amazing. this, no. Jason? This well, seems like something that you would have been really deflect- into. So it was a convertible There's that you could open the top. Right here. It says, the first open top car to keep out the rain even when it's stationary. Through what? A force field? I have no idea. That's funny. That's bizarre. But you can come on here and just read about all of these interesting ways that brands have tried to fool people or do funny things. Like, I always like the clever ones. They they gave examples of uh, Google, you know, making fake products and stuff like that. I remember Netflix did that. They actually went through with it. It was like a live video. It was like a live stream with some actor, some comedian. This isn't ringing a bell? No. Let me see. Netflix, April Fool's. But I just did remember a prank, a pretty pretty awful prank I played on a friend of mine once. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. Wait, let me read this April Fool's thing that they did, and then we'll go over to that. Oh, yeah. It was 2017. They added a new feature called Netflix Live. And it featured 48 minutes of comedy actor Will Arnett providing commentary on like tediously mundane footage, like a photocopier, a microwave, a toaster, two people thumb wrestling, a crossword puzzle. And it was just him like making random commentary. Incredible. And so you like they actually went through with this. It wasn't like, hey, this is what we're going to do. They, they did they it. They did it. That's yep. amazing. So I like stuff like that. Okay, what was your story? Well, if it's creative. Like the BMW thing and the Netflix thing, that's outside of the box. That's creative. It takes effort to do that. And it's not harming anybody. Like it's not scaring anyone necessarily. Exactly. Right. So one can prank and one can do an April Fool's without being cruel about it. However, (laughs) speaking of kids being cruel, 
Oh boy. The, the, we did, there, my best friend Sean and his two brothers, we did some pretty crazy shit to each other. We were, you know, who said this once? I think Joe Rogan said it actually on, on his podcast once that he thinks that the most dangerous group of humans on the planet are teenage boys. <laughs> yes. And I couldn't agree more because I think if I had to select my most insensitive period of my life, it was when I was a young teenage boy. Because you're full of tes- yeah. like testosterone's flooding your bloodstream. You're finally like having sexual feelings. You're kind of wild and violent, but you're not a kid. But you're not a teenager. You, you know, you're young. Te- like I think between the ages of probably like twelve and fifteen was probably my like wildest, like most reckless, like a teenage boy. Like I can identify with that, right? So one of the things we would do, we would play pranks on each other, me and Sean and his brothers. And one of the times, Sean, <laughs> we were having breakfast at his house and. He walked out of the room, <laughs> and I pissed in his orange juice. <laughs> no, you didn't. You peed in his yeah, drink. But not enough for him to taste it, just enough for it to like blend in so he could drink it, and then <gasps> afterward we would tell him that we pissed oh in his orange juice. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, if your mom's good. listening, is she going to be like, Jason. I mean, yeah, that's I don't think I've ever talked about that publicly. Here we go. This might get wow. uncomfortable. And do you I remember kind of what the mindset was? Because I remember going through those phases myself, even, you know, Whoa. as a woman, we did these things too. And actually, you want to hear one of my bad oh, go stories? For it. Go for it. It wasn't an April Fool story, but it was one of those things there. I'm like, I can't believe I did this. <laughs> and I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly oh, 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 either. Oh. Like, what the hell was I thinking? There was this one boy that was, I think, just kind of annoying and also kind of gullible. And I think he had played a prank on on me and my best friend at some point. He told us he was going to buy us. Uh, oh, I have actually, I just thought of another prank that was played on me too. It's funny, right? Like having a conversation, you start to remember all of these things. Okay, so this first one is the really bad one. The second one is innocent, but I was like, I can't believe this person did this to me. So part one and part two. Part one. This boy told me and my best friend who lived across the street from me that he had bought us this really cool device we had pre-cell phones. And I forget what it was called, but it allowed you to like message each other. It was like a Casio product and it could somehow through like Bluetooth or similar technology message people if you were in the same room with them. So like texting them or voice memo? No, it was like... Technically, it was texting Texting. them, but this is before we had cell phones. Right, right. I mean, maybe cell phones existed, but like they weren't nearly as available as they are today, right? So for us, it was like this cool technology. It was called like My Secret Diary or something. Interesting. (laughs) I've never heard of this. I got to look. Well, because it was a very, very girly thing. Hold on. Casio Diary. But my friend ended up getting one. Is this some 80s stuff or 90s 90s, stuff? yep. Yeah, it was pink. And Is that it what was, it's called? It's not even coming up, but it was maybe it wasn't Casio. It was this digital diary, and it was like pink and purple. And anyways, if I find it, I'll, I'll put it in uh, the picture, in the show, show notes. notes as well, if anybody else is curious. But maybe some people are listening to it, and they know what we're talking about. But it was like, you know... I've always loved technology, so it's here. Is this it right here? Now I know what to get you for your birthday this year. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I think it might have been this. Go on which, eBay. It looks really stupid. Well, the technology's changed so much. Let me just try I mean, one other yeah, thing. Yeah, early now '90s really texting was probably. Oh, here not. it is. 
my What is it? What's it called? <laughs> it's funny because the picture's not coming up. Maybe there were all these like knockoffs. Might have been this. It might have been this one by Tiger called Dear Diary. Oh, okay. <laughs> is this ringing any bells, Jason? Yeah, because Tiger was an electronics company yep. in the 90s. Yeah. Something like that. I think it might have been it. Anyways, okay, it was so like the thing you... to have. My parents wouldn't buy those sort of things for me, right? It was just like, I don't know how much it cost. It was probably like 40 or $50, which felt like a lot when you're young. And anyways, this kid in school told me he was going to buy them for me and my friend and to go out to the mailbox. He's like, yeah, I put them in the mailbox. And he like had this elaborate pl- prank. And so I believed him and I went out there and there's no diary. And I was like, pissed off. Oh, he didn't put like anything right? in the mailbox instead no. of it? Oh, that's what I was like. Expecting. I remember we were probably chatting over like AOL Instant Messenger or something back then. And like he's telling us or maybe we were like doing a three-way phone call, me and my best friend and this kid who's like trying to convince us he's doing these things. So he was pranking us. And I think we pranked him after that, right? But that doesn't justify what I did, which is he came over to hang out with us after school one day. And... We got it in our heads that we were going to cut the brakes on his bike. And so I think actually my friend ended up doing it. I can't remember if it was our idea combined or one of our ideas. I hope it wasn't my idea, but it could have been. And she cut his brakes and he biked home without brakes and then realized it as he was biking home down a hill. And then his mom called us and was livid. And I don't remember what happened after that. He was okay. He didn't get hurt. But it was like one of those things where in our heads, we were like, we're going to get him back and serves him right to prank us. Like, we'll prank him back, right? But he could have been seriously injured. Yeah, you cut his brake line. Yep. Yep. Jeez. But it was one of those life lessons where you're like, you didn't realize how bad something... like. I think sometimes the consequences of your actions when you're younger, you just don't realize. For you, it's like peeing in somebody's drink. Like, that sounds horrible. But as a kid, you're like, well, this is acceptable. Yeah, right? of course, Like of something course, in your head made you think it was acceptable. And something in our head thought like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a prank. Perhaps it's this, who said this recently? I'm trying to remember who told me this, but that, that we were talking about this, I think, that the brain doesn't fully develop in a human till age, is it 25 or 27? That the brain isn't fully formed or the amygdala isn't fully formed mm-hmm. until... Yep, like 21 qu- or something No, like I that. thought it was older than that. I thought it was 25 or 27. But this leads me to believe that perhaps because the brain isn't fully developed yet, that kids at a certain age lack empathy or they mm-hmm. lack a sense of consequence, which I think mm-hmm. is true, which probably explains certainly... My reckless behavior, probably also growing up without a father, but that's whatever. My mom did a great job. No slam on my mom. But I think like undeveloped brain plus testosterone plus hormones plus lack of consequence or empathy, that's a kind of a dangerous formula if you think about it. It is. It's a dangerous formula. It is. Yep. So I think for me- I don't even know what my excuse was though. (laughs) Like both me and my friend came from like really loving families- we were well-educated. Like, I don't know where that idea came from, Yeah, right? To do something like that. And it, but in some realm of consciousness at certain parts of our life, we think that some things are acceptable. Yeah. And now the right? idea of like cutting someone's brake lines on their car would be like, what? Right. You Like, are you not? Are you a psychopath? Right. But hey, at 12, you're like, yeah, cut the brake line. <laughs> sure. <laughs> 
He didn't get us the My Diary. Fuck him. <laughs> Fuck him. Good luck down the hill, Billy. Good luck. Enjoy the scabs. I can't believe <laughs> that's hardcore. Like when you think about it, Whitney, the dude went down a hill on the and way the fact home. That I'm laughing. I'm laughing because Jesus. it's it's like laughing out of. Um, sometimes we laugh when we're like. In disbelief. Like, that's how I'm feeling right now. I, I really have to ask my friend about this. I could probably look him up, too, because I saw him at, like, one of our school reunions. So he's alive and well, that's for sure. But, uh, yeah, I just, it's so bizarre. Oh, you know what? Actually, a couple other pranks came to mind. Oh, here we one go. I got in big trouble for, same friend, because we, we were best friends, lived across the street from each other. So, like, we did a lot together. We were, and still to this day, heavily involved in each other's lives. One time, her parents were out of town, and they had a nanny staying at the house. I don't remember how old we were, but we were probably in like middle school. And my friend's older sister was late teens, I'm guessing. And for some reason, the nanny let the sister have a boy spend the night. Like She was like super liberal and like cool with a guy staying overnight. And as like preteens or young teenagers, my friend and I wanted to prank her sister and this guy that was staying the night with by taking Crisco. What is Crisco? Margarine or? Hydrogenated vegetable oil. (laughs) Hydrogenated vegetable oil, like solidified hydrogenated vegetable oil. We took the Crisco and lathered up every surface that we could in the home because we thought like they'd come downstairs or something and like touch all the, I don't know what our reasoning was. I know for sure we lathered up the railing to the stairs so that when you're walking down the stairs and you put your hand on the railing, you would be like covered in Crisco. Oh, well, thankfully you didn't do the floor because then it would have been like, <laughs> you know, like Scooby-Doo and again, I have no idea why we did that and what our logic was, but we got in huge trouble. But see, that's the thing huge is, trouble. is, like you said, there's just no sense of consequence. Right. Sometimes, though, I think delayed consequence has a different psychological effect than immediate consequence, yep, right? For because sure. delayed consequence, there's still the possibility that you might not get caught. Right. Okay. Right. But as opposed to immediate consequence, because as you're doing this and we're ping ponging this, which of course we here on this might get uncomfortable. We never know the direction of any episode. Just a small sidebar. We improvise every single episode in the sense that Whitney and I don't have scripts. We don't have prompts. Even with you the don't guests, even know that this was the topic. No, and even with the guests, <laughs> we literally, for you, dear listener, if you are ever curious, we don't know what we're going to topically discuss with one another, Whitney and I, nor with the guests we have. So. An added layer of this, if you're appreciating this podcast and sharing it, is that we are improvising each episode. Now, back to what I wanted to say as we're ping-ponging, Whitney, I had a a thought that when I was in high school, got our license junior year, I was one of the first people in school to drive for whatever my age was. So I ended up like driving people a lot. And then my other friends started driving. One thing we used to do is we had, you know how like in, um, was it Saved by the Bell or 90210 that was the Peach Pit? Which one was the Peach Pit? I think it was 90210 or Melrose Place. It was the Peach Pit. Right? Yeah, it definitely wasn't saved by the okay, bell. Okay. I think it was 90210. So we had a peach yeah. pit. We had a place that was called the Mad Hatter Cafe <laughs> no. in Detroit. It was technically Dearborn, but right on the border of Detroit that we would hang out. That was like Is our it peach still pit. still there? No, it closed years ago. Uh, but 
what we would do is we'd go inside and eat and get coffee or get tea or whatever. But then in the parking lot, the parking lot was the real hang. People came in their cars. They'd hang out in the parking lot. We'd hang out there for hours and hours. So, At what were, age? This was like 16, 17. Yeah, this was junior, senior year of high school. So after we got our license. We would go by, though. There was some, not like a rivalry, but like whatever, dudes that we were just like oh fucking God. with. So we would go four or five deep in a car with three to four packs of eggs. And we would do drive-by eggings where like one person would be the driver, the getaway driver, and three of us would be hanging out of the windows, pummeling the people in the parking lot with eggs. Now- Raw eggs. Raw eggs. Just pummeling them. Now, of course, immediate consequence being the topic at this moment, of course, inevitably, they would get in their car and chase us. Oh, no. So I have stories of being chased through the streets of Detroit and Dearborn, Michigan, driving- 75 and a 35 trying to get away from these people that wanted to beat our ass. Beat our ass. We never did actually get our asses beat because we had good drivers, but it was the adrenaline because you're 16. You're an adrenaline junkie. So pelting people with eggs and getting chased in a 35 going 75 by someone weaving through. We did dumb, reckless shit, but it was exciting. I wonder if that's just part of like how we developmentally is that we do these things to see what the consequences what can we get away with I how think far is part can we push it. things exactly how are people gonna we want to get a reaction out of people i think that's part of april fools it's like there's something very stimulating to upsetting somebody right or upsetting them to the point where your safety is threatened right and i then mean you that's think extreme you're testing yourself to see how you can get away from it and you're curious, like, what the boundaries are. And I think it's just, maybe it's just part of how we explore these things. And I think we also play around with punishment. Like, in my case, with cutting those brake wires, like, for whatever reason, we logically, like, felt that the kid deserved it. You know, like, that's how yeah. we justified it. Yeah. And so I think as children, we don't feel like we have a lot of control. And so, and maybe adults feel the same way when they feel out of control. And they just want to like have a good time. They want to laugh about somebody else's expense that makes them feel better. I mean, I think that's why we have so much criticism and bullying. It's like an outlet of, I want to make this person feel bad so that we both feel bad. Or I just want a distraction. And so what's a good way to get distraction? Well, maybe if I can bother or hurt somebody else. I'll be distracted from the fact that I'm hurt. Hurting, right. Or I'm bored or whatever. Right. Right. So it's really interesting that sometimes these extremes feel so extreme and you hear them from the outside and you're like, I can't believe anyone do that. But when I look back on some of the things that I did as a kid, it's also one of those examples of we have to remind ourselves that we've made decisions that weren't the best either. And that helps us have compassion for the things that people do that we don't understand. We want to get on our high horse and say, well, how dare they and how could they? You know, But we also have go- met most of us, not all of us, but many of us have gone through these experiences that make no logical sense. But at the time, they made enough sense to us to do them. Well, I think also there's this sense from parental figures and family and elders in our life, right? And you've probably experienced this, Whitney. I'm sure most people have, not all, but this sense of, I want to teach you this so that you don't make the same mistakes I did. That whole mentality, right? So I remember in terms of reckless things, and I know we're diverging a bit, but I'm thinking about kind of that 
semi-violent instigating behavior that I did as a teenager with being chased and agging people. When I started riding a motorcycle at age, what was I, 21? My mom, of course, was not happy about it, but my mom rode Harley Davidson's and Hondas, and my mom was a motorcycle rider. My mom's pretty badass, right? So back in her day, like she had motorcycles for many years. So my whole thing was like, you did it, so I'm going to do it, right? So she, ah, but it's unsafe. I'm like, you did it. I'm going to do it. But her whole thing was, of course, trying to, in this example, try and stay, you know, be safe, be responsible. And of course, what, second or third bike is... It was at a time the fastest bike you could buy in the world. It was a 1986 Suzuki GSX-R 1100. I took that bike one time to nearly 140 miles an hour on a street, on a road. That's crazy as shit. That's fast in a car. On a motorcycle, I didn't, of course, I'm 21. Like I don't realize the gravity of it necessarily. We again talked about the development of the brain and the amygdala and the frontal lobe. Like My 21-year-old brain was like, that seems like a perfectly reasonable thing to do on, uh, what was it, I-94 in Detroit? Just go 140. Would I do that now? Hell no. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I survived it. But at that speed on a motorcycle, if I would have wiped out, that's not a high chance of survival. Mm-hmm. So I think back at that necessarily, what was motivating me? Curiosity, adrenaline, like the feeling of doing that is like, oh my God, you feel so alive, which I think adrenaline junkies are people that literally risk their lives doing like free solo and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's like some people look at that and go, how could you possibly do that? But in my own way, having done things that were really risky, I can understand the appeal of the adrenaline rush. But now, you know, that I've been riding 21 years, do I need to or want to go 140 miles on a motorcycle? No. Like, I'm good. I did it. Now I just ride for pleasure. I love it because the open air and the sunshine and the wind, and I'm very, very safe now. But at 21, I wanted to feel like what it was like to go 140 miles on a motorcycle. I'm glad I did. But it was also reckless as shit. I think there's also some power involved or attention. I think some people do it to get attention. I mean, you've talked about this before, Jason. I don't know if you've talked. I imagine you have that you felt like you needed to be the funny person to get attention and validation. We talked about that, I think, in the Aya episode. Yeah. Yep. Well, the other example I wanted to give about a prank that someone played on me that I've actually reflected on off and on throughout my life as after it happened, it wasn't cruel, but it was very manipulative. Looking back, trying to think, why did this person decide to do this? It's actually a, a kind of like cute slash funny story. So I've gone through a number of, for lack of a better word, obsessions with certain bands or musicians, right? When I was in high school, I think, maybe that was before high school, but at some point, middle school, high school, I got really into the Backstreet Boys, as many girls did, <laughs> right? Yeah. I was a Backstreet Boys fan, not an NSYNC fan. I like NSYNC. I was more Backstreet Boys, especially at the beginning. And I was really into pop music. And so they were emerging, and I was listening to them before they became really, really popular. Because I actually heard them for the first time when I was on a trip in like Toronto or Montreal and saw them on television. They were bigger in... European or non-US countries at that time. So they were big in Canada and Europe, but not in the US. So I bought their album. And then like a few months later, maybe six months later, they blew up in the US, right? 
So I was like feeling really cool because I was such a big tried and true Backstreet Boys fan. And one girl in my high school went to this huge concert that where they, I think, played, right? Like they were one of the, I think it was one of those like, like a multi- festival. Yeah. Yeah. Like a one day yep. concert where a bunch of artists play. She said that she went. In hindsight, I don't know if she actually went to this concert, but she came up with this elaborate story about how she met the Backstreet Boys and ended up becoming friends with them. And here I am, this huge fan, and at an age where I was very gullible, and I believed her. And then she was like, don't tell anybody, but I have their contact information. We talk all the time through email. And through Instant Messenger, AOL Instant Messenger, which was really big back then. So she's like, if you don't tell anyone, I can put you in touch with them. (laughs) So, of course, I'm like, oh, my God, because her story was so detailed and elaborate, like just this, this crazy story that she's telling me. And I trusted her. I figured like this all must be true. Why would she lie to me about this? And she really wanted to keep it hush hush. So one day I go on AOL Instant Messenger and I get this message from this account that I wasn't connected to. And the message said something along the lines of, Hey, you're so and so's friend. This is Brian from the Backstreet Boys. (laughs) And I was like, Oh my God. The Backstreet Boys are talking to me and they were messaging me all these stories about what they were up to and how they were traveling. And I was writing them back, fully believing that I was talking to the Backstreet Boys, Jason. Fully, right? How like, it's, long it's, did it's this go of, on with? It's kind of the equivalent, though, of connecting with a celebrity and Instagram DM. Like, you actually could do that. For sure. Right? Like, and celebrities you, do do that, exactly. where they will have exchanges, like in-depth exchanges with fans. Yes, yes they will. Right. I mean, you right. can reach celebrities through social media. For sure. So this is the equivalent of that back whatever year this was when AOL Instant Messenger was really big. 99. Right? Like this and the Backstreet Boys were really big. Like to me, it actually felt very plausible. Also around the same time. One of my friends, AOL Instant Messenger was really cool. It basically was the Instagram of that time. Oh, for sure. Right? The other thing, because of the chat rooms, I was able to find Jonathan Taylor Thomas's phone number, supposedly, through some chat room on AOL. And one of my friends called the number and still to this day swears that she talked to Jonathan Taylor Thomas's mother. I don't think she ever reached Jonathan, <laughs> but at the time he was a big heartthrob. There was one time in the '90s where I talked to JTT's mom, <laughs> like she's somewhere in a bar. If somewhere nobody, in a bar, I in hope other listeners know who Jonathan Taylor Thomas was. He was a really big deal. I mean, if you saw the movie The Lion King, he was the voice of Simba, so that was Aww. he had a pretty good claim to fame. Hope he's doing good. Was in a movie with Chevy Chase. That was a really good man of the house. Shout out JTT. And of his biggest fame, what came from um, Home Improvement. Exactly. Yeah. So shout yeah. out JTT. He's and a shout big, out, he was a big deal. And shout out to the woman who claimed to have talked to his mom, who was probably retelling that story in the bars somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in boston she's like yeah in the 90s i talked to jtt's mom she swears it's true yeah, she's still telling okay it somewhere, so anyways somewhere. long story short when i was finally the gave up on this backstreet boys thing thing and i was like telling my family oh, like god. oh my god dad 
I'm talking, I was printing out our chats to this day, to this day, somewhere in my parents' house is a printout of my supposed direct messages or AOL instant messages with the Backstreet Boys. And here's the thing. The reason I bring up this story is that part of me feels a little sad for my teenage self that thought that I was talking to the Backstreet Boys and wonders why this girl I trusted made this elaborate story. She wasn't like some girl that I wasn't friends with who was trying to like be mean, like girls can be really mean to each other in high school. I don't think it. she had that motive. I think that her drive was that maybe she wanted me to think that she was important, right? Like it made her sure. feel good for me to believe that she was friends with the Backstreet Boys. It gave her power, prestige. Validation, significance, all of these different things. And then I ended up talking to her a lot more. So maybe it like strengthened our friendship, even though it was built on a lie. Maybe that was in her head a way for us to get closer or something. And ultimately just for her to feel important. Yeah. Whitney, there's something I need to tell you. (laughs) I'm not actually friends with Scott Bayo. I'm sorry. What? Sorry, I'm not actually friends with Scott Bayo. When did you say you were? It's a joke. <laughs> I don't get it. Charles, because it's one of those things like I earned your friendship through being like, oh, no, I met this guy, Jason. He's really cool. And you know, Scott Bayo, Charles in charge. He dated Pam Anderson okay, in like 1990. That, that guy. He's on that point, Scott Bayo. I actually was thinking about this <laughs> yesterday and now it's all feeling like it's tying in how much we get excited when somebody we know knows somebody else. I want also, right? yes, the name dropping thing. Yes. Because that's another thing. Well, not just name dropping, but like, ooh, like so-and-so knows so Actually knows. Yeah. It's hard to discern sometimes. My point is whether someone is just greasing you up, is just lubing you up by like, oh, I actually did curls today next to Dr. Dre, <laughs> you know, or like in Los Angeles where we live and where we record this podcast, have our businesses and our lives. It's a nuanced, precarious thing because so many people in this town love to name drop. And unless you really get to know that human being on a more intimate level, you don't know if someone's bullshitting you or not. But I don't know if it's just about name dropping. That's not fully my point here. My point is like when you feel excited because somebody you know knows somebody important And you know for sure they know that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I could give you a... Both of us combined could... We have connections to virtually anybody. I mean, including one of my, one person that I massively look up to that we were just talking about earlier today, Jason, whose name I will not say, but uh-huh. one of my big, like, I don't know what word to use. Um, I wouldn't say idol. I'm not a hero. Someone you deeply admire as an artist. Yes, just, yeah, exactly. You have great admiration for his artistry. Who's technically a celebrity, right? Technically, yes. I have connections to this person, and it's like, exciting for me because I feel like, wow, it just feels, it's even hard to just verbalize. I guess it just feels good that there's like a possibility that one day you get to hang out with somebody, right? And it's because of the admiration though. The point here is not, because there's a line here. The line is that I feel some people feel excited to be around someone just because they're famous. Right. Right. And sometimes you go into restaurants and sometimes there are are certain people in our wellness industry that will post a lot of photos of them with celebrities. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, are you posting this just because you want social proof because you're around this human or do you actually admire what they're doing creatively? 
I think your point, Whitney, and I operate on this level too, is that if someone's art, if their work, if their creativity has touched my life in some profound way, I do feel excited to meet them. But just because someone has fame or influence doesn't mean I'm excited to meet them mm-hmm. unless they've touched me in some way. If they've really, like, for me, there's an echelon of people that have their work is so profound and has shaped my life as a person and an artist that is so massive that it would be challenging for me to like meet them because it would be like, you'd understand, like, there's not a lot of those people. But I think to your point, this person you're talking about, like their art and their work has touched you in a very deep and profound way. Right. And that makes sense why you would be so excited. Yeah. Fame aside, even if they weren't a famous person, their art and their work in the world means something to you. Yes. It's meaningful. Yes, absolutely. But I think the reason why it's a little bit different mentally is because we're often feeling like somebody's out of reach. And then when they suddenly feel within reach, it feels like you've accomplished something, like you get access to something that other people don't get access to. Interesting. You know what I mean? And does that make you feel like special or more significant or like what does that engender in you? What is that it's feeling? A, I've for you? actually been reflecting a lot. I'm not fully sure. I'm pulling up some notes from a book that I'm reading right now that's really phenomenal. Which is? And actually somebody that I we do have a connection to. I think Jason, you told me you know this person. <laughs> oh go on. Which is kind of funny because of what I, we're talking I about right now. You know this person? I believe you told me this once, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing her first name right. Well, she's a writer. I, I think her books are published in Hay, Hay House as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Lisa Rankin? Oh, Lisa. yeah. Lisa. Lisa. Yeah. How do you know her? I know her because we lectured in 2013 or 14, maybe it was 14, at the Take Back Your Health conference in um, Virginia. So Lissa came up to me after my lecture and was like, oh, I loved what you did, blah, blah, blah. And we found out that we both had a mutual connection in Chris Carr. So Lissa is really good friends with Chris. So at that time, I was talking about some stuff with Chris. She's like, oh, I'm good friends with Chris. So Lissa and I met back, yeah, at the Take Back Your Health conference. She's a sweetheart and absolutely love her book, The Fear Cure. Well, you have to read her book, The Anatomy of a Calling, which I'm reading right now. It's really? so fantastic. Because The Fear Cure is incredible. Oh, yeah. She's an incredible writer. Is this her the, newest one? I don't know what order these came. I think this came out after The Fear Cure. We'll link to all these books in the show notes. They're a must read, in my opinion. And The Anatomy of a Calling is kind of similar to The Fear Cure, it's a, but it's a, like figuring out what your purpose is. And tapping in, it's all very much about the hero's journey, which she references a lot. So it's got a lot of the Joseph Campbell stuff that Jason loves. And the section that I was just reading last night really pertains to this, highlighted almost the entire page. So I'm like trying to scan it to find this one part. That profound. Wow. Oh, it's really fantastic. It was one of the best sections of the book that I read so much, which is about halfway through. It's also one of those books, I can't believe I'm only halfway through it because I've received so much value from it. She was talking about how she had her ego which versus her inner pilot light. And she actually named her ego Victoria. But you pronounce her first name Le- Lissa. Lissa, which is hard because it's spelled L-I-S-S-A. Lissa. I don't know. For some reason in my head, I just want to say Lisa so badly. Okay. Well, Victoria, Lissa's ego, says that she has an underlying sense of unworthiness And she continues to pursue external validation as a way to feel more valuable in the world. Nothing lights her up more than emails from people who swear they she saved their lives. The impulse to be of service 
motivated by the impulse to spread love in the world, but also feeling like she's not giving enough unless she's giving until she's depleted. Continues to get, there's just so much here about how this side of her wants to prove herself. She has to feel satisfied. She'll do whatever it takes to save the world. She is looking for ways to get all this validation. And I'm getting up to, she likes to get dressed up and attract attention. She's into glamour shots, fashion, and seeing her number of Facebook likes grow. She loves hanging around famous people because it feeds that underlying sense of unworthiness and makes her feel important, like she matters, and like she belongs. Wow. And I thought that was really interesting. Wow. If nobody is paying attention to her, she'll start name dropping like nobody's business, right? Like she needs to be recognized and feel worthy. And part of the way that she feels that way is if she's around famous people that she can name drop on. Makes sense. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, that's that's such a classic description of a lot of people that we meet, like kind of the cliche person in Los Angeles tends to be this type of person that's just ruled by that ego and this desire to kind of know somebody who you're rubbing elbows with and all that stuff, right? And we didn't, I mean, I don't know how we got to this. this How do we ever know? How do we ever know? We started talking about April Fool's jokes (laughs) and here we are talking about the ego and celebrity. Well, it's beautiful because I, again, I think that there's this sense of, I need something outside of myself to be validated, whether that's a celebrity association or the right car or the right zip code or the right Fendi bag or the right, I mean, we could extrapolate this into so many things. And we've talked about this on multiple episodes is, the ego validation of if I have all of these external things that will prove my worthiness, then I'll feel good enough. Right. And it's comforting to know, right, that the games that our ego plays are sometimes very similar to the games that other people's ego plays. Right. Very like when, That's when part Liz- of the reason this book is so good is because yes. it's mostly her sharing her personal experiences and how she's worked through them and yeah. how she kind of figured out more about herself so that she could lead from less of an ego and be more tapped into herself. But it also ties into, to come back around to the original point, thinking about our motivations for playing pranks or lying to people are probably just very ego driven, you know? For sure. Like if hanging around famous people feeds the underlying sense of unworthiness and makes us feel important, like we matter and like we belong, that might explain why when I was a teenager, my teenage friend lied about something for so long, right? She made up this huge story and it probably wasn't a prank in the traditional way. She wasn't trying to make a fool out of me, but she was trying to feel worthy and important and that she mattered and that she belonged and, you know, to build up all this friendship. And so name dropping was her way of doing that. And then she did it in a way that, I mean, the elaborate element of this, she went and like created a fake account on AOL just to trick me. You know what I mean? Like went to whatever extremes. But then we think about catfishing and the people that go on social media and create all of these beautiful posts about themselves and might not actually be them. Like we do a lot of these things that, I mean, catfishing is is technically pranking somebody too, right? Like drawing someone in to date you because you don't think you're worthy enough. So you're going to present yourself as somebody that you're not to get the attention of someone, even if it's temporary, even if they find out who you really are, it's worth it because at least you got their attention 
at least you felt important to them yeah for some time i think to me the reality is that attention equals energy and if someone is getting your attention they're getting energy from you so i think on a very like basic spiritual fundamental mechanical energetic level that if someone has your attention they're getting energy and i think right now why this is so powerful and so poignant is that in our current social media culture attention is the highest form of currency whether or not people have talent or they're bringing necessarily value to an industry if they have attention they command a lot of energy in this world they wield a lot of energy through that attention mm -hmm. so i think pranking people or fooling them or having control or dominance over them like that's getting energy from someone well it's also as this book goes into it's about feeling like you're being helpful because you feel not good enough but if somebody says that you changed their life now you feel valuable right right if you feel like you're being of service that you're spreading love i mean a lot of people like to make fun of influencers for remember that tiktok i sent you the other day jason about how after the coronavirus this guy is predicting that everybody's going to be coming out with social media posts about what they learned and the spiritual journeys they took in quarantine and it's Completely. kind of funny when you think about it because you're like oh here it comes like the cliche spiritual posts and they're already happening right now as we're recording this like a lot of people are posting about their deep thoughts that are happening because they're not at work or because they're spending more time with their family like, life has changed for us temporarily although it's always kind of changing we see a lot of these posts where people are are spreading love but sometimes you can see through them because there's a difference between spreading love because you feel very compelled to share that message. It's like your calling, as this book talks about, versus you're saying that you're spreading love, but it feels very evident that you're doing that to get attention and feel important. Like you just want somebody to validate you as saying something wise. Exactly. Right? I think it's actually a very fine line. It's a gray area there because why do we post on social media? <laughs> It's really tough to be a content creator. The more it becomes popular and the more that it's saturated with people that just seem to be wanting to feed their egos, I step back a lot. And sometimes I don't post at all on social media because I can't tell the difference between am I doing this to help other people or am I doing this to help my ego? It's really tricky. It is tricky. Agreed. I mean, Russell Brand talked about that when we saw him a few weeks ago at Wanderlust. He was just, he was kind of admitting like, I can't tell sometimes whether it's my ego wanting to do this or it's my higher self, my spirit, my oversoul. And that resonates. And I feel like you just reflected that back, Whitney. It's like as people who have a spirit of generosity and service and genuinely wanting to make a positive difference in the world, I don't know that one can remove one's ego all of the way. I don't know that that's possible. This just reminded me of one other thing before we can discuss before we wrap up. And this actually might get uncomfortable for us to discuss, Jason. For you and me. Well, here we are. We're on the right podcast for it. I mean, maybe you and I didn't think about it, but it, for some reason just popped into my head that you and I played a prank on your mom that got very misinterpreted oh, right. and we didn't realize it. So right. it occurred to me because I was sitting here as you were speaking and reflecting on there are times where we do things and we feel like we're just not going to, how do I put this? It's like we have an intention for it, and then it gets interpreted differently than we intended, and we never realized 
that it could be misinterpreted that way. So do you want to share this or should I, or we can both kind of dive into yeah, it? Yeah, this was like, I moved into a condo outside of Los Angeles in a neighborhood called Glendale. This was years ago. And my mom was coming to visit from Detroit and there was a model condo across the way from mine. And so we had this idea of like, oh, why don't we just like bring my mom into the model apartment because it's open and like try and pass it off as mine. And it was like a very sterile, like it, the energy didn't even feel anything like mine. But it was like, yeah, it was a basically a mirror image of your place. It was. Yeah. And your mom had seen your place only through photos and FaceTime. Yep. Yeah. So she and came. And so the kitchen was the same and the we felt like the furniture could kind of look like yours. But first of all, why did we even want to do that? But I, no, I think I, I don't even remember. Honestly, it was like a childlike thing, though, it wasn't was, it? It's yeah, like that. We, it was like an innocent moment of, ooh, let's see if we can fool somebody. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was certainly not trying to be cruel or, or diminishing to her. Well, like but, in a way, it was kind of sweet, in my opinion. Like because it, it's something that you don't normally do as adults is try to fool people in that way like that sounds like something i would have done as a kid how about you i guess so i just i reflect on it like i don't remember what the original intention was but it was one of those things where i remember going in and she had this moment of like where are all the cats and like after that (laughs) and after that that was the moment of like oh guess what it's not the right thing and because we led her around the condo giving her the tour yeah and it just looked like she seemed confused but she also like would never have guessed that we would be trying to prank her so She was in this weird moment of... Like, what's happening here? And maybe for her, that what felt like insecurity or yeah, something? Yeah, or, or disrespectful or disorienting. Yeah. Disorienting, that's a yeah, good word, yeah, is but, that she knew something was off, but her brain like couldn't imagine why she would be in that place yeah. otherwise. But I didn't know how upset it had made her, you know, because the thing was, like, in the moment, she didn't really communicate it until, like, years later that, like, she felt really, like, disrespected and felt like it was not funny and like you know that's the thing is it's so funny in the moment sometimes you don't know how things are affecting people unless they communicate it and i'm glad that she told me years later but at the time i was like i wish you would have told me like at the time about it right. but it's one of those things where even something where you don't feel is necessarily and i think this goes if i may just broaden it for a second to human communication and human relationships where we can do something where we feel like we're not being mean or cruel or intentionally harmful, but sometimes we can do things and it's received by a person and we don't realize the extent of that made them feel uncomfortable or it made them feel hurt or made them feel deceived. So this is like a prime example of us doing something that I felt was really innocent and playful. And she's like, yeah, I felt really like misled and disrespected and you guys were trying to like make a fool out of me. And I was like, I had no idea you felt that way. So it's just, but one- maybe it ties into what we've been talking about this whole episode where some people in those moments truly do go back to the original purpose of April Fool's Day. And it's like, which was to make a fool out of somebody. Yeah, right. And right. it's all a matter right. of interpretation. And who knows what experiences your mother had had before or as a child. And I think that we have to be very mindful of this because. Some people could brush it off and say like, oh, it's just a prank. It's harmless. Or, oh, it's April Fool's Day. Like, get over yourself. Yeah, but that's gaslighting. Exactly. That's gaslighting. Yeah. Yeah. So it it is important. Like even, and this goes back to, I think, one of the most basic and important things in human relationships. And this is like a deceptive thing. Like, let me go back to it. Sometimes I'll hear people say like, oh, I'm sorry you feel hurt. 
Right. Which is not an apology. Right. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry you. I made you feel disrespected. It was not my intention. I'm so sorry that, that I hurt you. Like, that's a real apology. But sometimes I hear some, like, spiritual bypassing sometimes where it's like, I'm sorry that you feel hurt by this. I don't know if, if I agree that it's spiritual bypassing because I actually try to be very mindful of my words. I just don't know if saying I'm sorry I hurt you is always like in that case with your mom. Neither one of us meant to hurt her. Yeah, but she got hurt nonetheless. So how do you kind of balance it out with saying like, wouldn't it be more accurate to say I'm sorry that you felt hurt by that? No. But why not? If your intention wasn't to hurt somebody, like it doesn't matter. I, in my opinion, if someone feels hurt, it doesn't matter whether my intention is there or not. I've noticed over the course of my life that people receive an apology differently when you take full ownership, whether it was your intention or not. That's just my school of how I deal with relationships now. Is like, but where did you learn? Like, I mean, I agree with you on one side, Jason, but I also had learned. That it's kind of not fair to you either to it's and it kind of brings up a lot of ego for people when they're apologizing. Cause personally, I feel like it's insincere for me to say things like that because then I'm not being fully honest with you. I'm just saying it to make you feel better. But then it actually pings back to me where I'm thinking, feeling resentful for having to apologize for something that I didn't actually mean to do. So how is that a true apology? If it's like not clearing the energy, do you know what I mean? Like, I hear what you're saying. I'm of the. But where did that come from for you? Is that, what I'm asking okay, you. And my, why do you have that reasoning? I have that reasoning because I noticed within myself that when I said things like, I'm sorry you feel hurt, that it was my ego trying to be right. That there was still a part of my ego that was attached to, but I didn't really mean it. I knew in my heart that. I don't want this person to hurt because of my actions, even though I didn't intend them to hurt. And to alleviate their hurt, to be honest about it and say, like, I'm sorry I hurt you. Like, I can say it wasn't my, I can say it wasn't my intention to have hurt you, but I am sorry. I'm sorry that this hurt you. Like, but see, I like that. I'm sorry that this hurt you. Is That's my point. Yeah. I mean, whether I, I think hurt you saying, or that this hurt you or my actions hurt you. That's what I'm trying to but, say. But to, is like, to me, I think it's important to check in, if I may, in closing, like, that there, in any apology, that if there's a part of me that's still trying to defend myself or defend my position or cling to being right, it's not a real apology for me. If I'm still trying to be right, if I'm still defending a position or not fully letting go of like, yeah, but I didn't mean it, that's not a real apology to me. It's I to me only saying. a real apology for me is when I drop my defenses, I drop my need to be right, and I'm more concerned with making peace with that other person. Still maintaining my integrity, but it's a fine line that we're talking about ego now. The ego is very deceptive in trying to defend, trying to maintain a position of righteousness. But to me, in my experience of life, if I'm still clinging to that, the apology is not authentic for me. I see. What you, I mean, it's a hard thing to figure out. It is. It is. I don't know if there's necessarily a right or wrong way to apologize on that point. I think you started off by saying that you feel like it's not the right way to apologize if you're not taking ownership for it. I think it really depends on the circumstance and the person and where like there's so many variables when it comes to an apology and and to me it also doesn't feel fair to judge somebody for their apology tactics or not tactic isn't the right word. Like their apology style is what I meant to say 
because each of us are learning how to communicate in every form. Every time we communicate with somebody, we're learning something. True. And so if somebody's apologizing or they're trying their best to apologize, it also takes away our ego. There's a responsibility on both parties to take the ego out of it. Agreed. Because I- the receiver has to take out this need for an apology or True this, that. right? Like True that. I think both people are struggling with an apology. It's a really tricky thing. And I just don't know if there's necessarily a best way to go about it. I think if there is a best way, the best way is to be as authentic as possible. And that's what I was trying to say. Right. If I'm trying to apologize for somebody just to make them feel better, but if I in the process end up feeling worse, then we're back at square one. Agreed. I think the best kind of apology is when both people can feel better at the end of it. I was just about to say that. And yes. I have had so many examples of apologizing for somebody else and then having so much resentment because I felt like that person kind of got the better end of the deal and it was like their ego needed to be to feel better, right? And it's still your ego talking when you're feeling resentful, right? But it's really tricky. And I've also gone about it where I've apologized in a way that didn't feel authentic to me. And then it didn't end up any better. The situation didn't like hatch up a friendship. It's like, it still can be, it doesn't guarantee you anything when you apologize no. in a certain style. No. But I think if two people can truly communicate from the heart, even if your words aren't perfect, even if your ego is still involved, If you can admit it and say, hey, it's really hard for me to apologize to you right now because I don't feel like I did anything wrong. You know what I mean? Like, that's a very honest thing to say. I didn't, when somebody says, I didn't mean to hurt you, there is partially ego, but ego, but there's also partially the reality of the situation. And I think when some people like demand apologies, it's like, why do you need to an apology so badly? I mean, I think you know? I think you nailed it. And what I resonated most with what you said, love, was was the feeling with both parties. And yes. to me, the word that comes is peace. Right. And that no matter the communication style or the words that are being said or how they're delivered, if ultimately there can be equanimity and peace between both people or multiple people, whatever the situation is, I think the feeling and the releasing of resentment, the releasing of tension, the releasing of animosity, to me, I think if one can achieve that no matter the methods, I think that's the aim. For both people. Yes. Like nobody has resentment. Yes. Nobody's carrying around a grudge. Yes. Nobody's being passive aggressive. Yes. Or faking. I mean, man, like one of the most hurtful experiences I went through with a friendship is when I got into an argument and I thought that it was resolved, but it turned out later based on how things went downhill after that, that I think that that person was kind of faking a resolution just to close it off. I've actually experienced versions of that over time, but that one haunts me to this day of when something happens and I tried my best to resolve it and I thought it was resolved. And then it was clear over the course of time that it was never resolved, but that person wanted to just pretend that it was resolved simply so that they could finish the conversation or the argument, whatever you want to call it. And that to me is why I'm saying it's so important for people not to fake an apology. It's so important for people explain how they're feeling and to 
hope that the other person is willing to talk through it, even if it is uncomfortable. I mean, that's really the point of our, of our messaging is that it's not always easy, but the best parts in life often come out of honesty and raw communication. And saying the thing you're scared to say. Exactly. And we know what that feeling is like when that fist, it feels like there's a ball in our stomach. Yes. And we know the words we want to say, but we're terrified to say them. And that is one of the bravest things anybody can do is to simply let the words that need to be spoken come out, even though you're terrified to say them. And it takes a lot of practice. And that's what I'm saying is I feel like if we have a right and a wrong way to apologize, a lot of people, myself included, if I know there's a right or wrong, I get so uncomfortable with that, that I will, I'll just be silent. I mm. mean, silence is often my response to not knowing what to do because I'm afraid of getting it wrong. Mm. Mm. And that's why I feel like it's so important to be accepting. If somebody gives you an apology, no matter what their words are, or whether or not your ego thinks that it was a, the right kind of apology, I think the best thing that you can do is either A, accept it, and then express how you feel, or let it go sometimes, right? Like, it didn't feel like the right apology, then let them know that you want a different type of apology, yeah, but be sure. unattached to them changing. Because sometimes sure. people just get so defensive and that makes them even more resistant, Yeah, right? and, and apologies, inauthentic apologies come a lot of the time, I feel, because that person who is delivering the apology doesn't want to talk about the uncomfortable things. So they're right. like, I'm sorry, okay? I'm just, I'm, and you can feel you're like, you're just wanting to not dig into uncomfortable feelings or emotions right now. So you're saying you're sorry so you can circumvent that part of it. Or because they're forced to. I mean, when you, you look know. at like politicians, a lot of the times that apologies have happened, maybe public figures, like you, or you see somebody in the courtroom or something, you know, like all these different examples or people that have done written apologies. And then the public will just tear it apart and be like, that's not a real apology, blah, 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 you know, on and on. And it's like, Okay, who, who, where did the apology police come from? And, but then also have compassion for this person that's probably being put up against the wall to apologize. I mean, right. imagine the amount of pressure that somebody feels to apologize publicly, but also maybe to apologize in a way that doesn't feel right to them. So of course it's going to feel forced and inauthentic in certain situations. Can I talk about one example of this? Because yes. I need to bring levity to this yeah. as we're wrapping up. Yeah. Okay, so we've seen a lot in the past few decades, of course, as the media has expanded and grown of these public figures issuing some sort of public apology. <laughs> one of the most, wow, I don't even know what to call it, absurd, entertaining, head-scratching was uh, from Mario Batali recently. Hmm. Um, so Mario Batali was... <sighs> accused of improper physical conduct in his food empire and sent out an email apology. This was, what was this last year, the year before, recently, where he sent out an email apology. And a mutual friend of ours showed me this recently because I'd never seen it before. I didn't even know he had done that. But at the end of the email apology, he was like, and by the way, here are some incredible holiday recipes you guys no. need just to blah, blah, blah. And, and it was great up until like, and by the way, if you were looking for holiday recipes, here they are. And I was like, Mario, I have respect for you, man. I, I've actually always liked Mario Batali and his cooking and his shows. But at the end, I was like, you probably ought not to have included like the suggestions for links to holiday recipes on your website when you're issuing a public apology for like 
sexual misconduct. But how do we know that wasn't like an assistant or some copyright, you know, like his team member? Either way, whoever on his team, like bad form, real bad form. It's funny, but you can also have compassion for it and just see like it could have been an honest mistake. Like somebody said, hey, Mario wrote this apology. Please copy it into this week's newsletter. And some intern or whoever is writing this, sending out the newsletters may simply have been unaware that they didn't delete the bottom section or they, you know what I mean? Like true. it could have just been some simple ignorant error and it's like, it's so sad that then those things are now up out in the public eye for speculation. I know. It's just, there's an element of like, it doesn't like make me, again, hate Mario Batali. And it was just almost like that kind of faux pas. It's like, yeah, it's a faux pas oof, for sure. Like cringe, cringe, <laughs> yeah, cringe, cringe. Right. So I'm not throwing Mario under the bus. But again, to your point, Whitney, whether it was intentional and or non intentional or a mistake, there's still a point where you're like, Oh man, like holiday strudel recipes under a public apology. Like there's just like party in like my gut. I was like, ooh, not good. Not good. Right. But it, yeah, it's just, I guess those type of moments just remind us all that we're, we're human and everybody Fallible. makes mistakes. True Even that. a polished person with people on their team reviewing things that has money and experience and expertise and professionalism. Like even those people make mistakes and we can either laugh at them. Or we can say, hey, I'm, thank you for showing me that you're human too. And you also don't know how to navigate an apology correctly, you know, (laughs) or let's take the word correctly out of there, but to navigate an apology perfectly, (laughs) right? Because I don't know if there is such a thing. So uh, this has certainly been an interesting exploration of pranks and April Fool's Day and ego Mm -hmm. and apologies. And, and our motivations, yeah, the mm-hmm. reasons that we do things and forgiving ourselves and forgiving other people for the times that we fall short. And then also being able to laugh at, at the fun parts of this all. Like We should be grateful for when a, a prank is feels very innocent and it's interpreted that way. But I also have learned over the years, thanks to social media, that there's always going to be somebody who's upset about a prank, who who feels hurt by it or offended by it or something. Like I don't know if there's ever an example of something going over perfectly. All these brands trying their best. And and as this episode comes out on April Fool's Day, there could be all sorts of faux pas happening today. And there could be some really good pranks and jokes. So to end on a light note as well, we'd love to hear from you, dear listener. What are some of your most proudest moments of April Fool's Day or pranks? What are or some infamous? Yeah, infamous or things that you regret, like Jason and I shared, <laughs> or times where you had to apologize for something that you just unintentionally did, you thought was innocent, and it just didn't go the way that you planned. If you want to share any of those stories, we'd love to hear it. You can share those on social media, publicly or privately. We're at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. You can email us or direct message us. Our email is hello at wellevator.com. And you can comment on this post, which is in written format, in our show notes at podcast.wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. We read every message, every comment. We try to get back to emails as quickly as possible because we love being in touch with you and hearing your stories and your feedback. 
We are so grateful for you as a listener. And we hope that you will subscribe and leave a review if you enjoy the podcast. Also, final note, April 1st, April Fool's Day marks my 13th year of moving back to Los Angeles. Huh. So that's always has extra texture to it for me. So happy 13th year in LA to me. 13 years. It's a long time to make it here in this town. And do you, but you don't recall any pranks happening that day when you moved out here. I don't, but maybe I'll do something this year. Celebrate number 13. Prank yourself by moving out of Los Angeles. Prank myself. Tell you, bye, bye, everyone. I'm leaving. That would be a pretty good prank because you keep talking about moving out of LA. Maybe be like, hey, Wit, bought a house in Vegas. I'm out. Bought a cabin in Colorado. But now we've already discussed it, so I'm sorry. Still the opportunity. Yeah, no, I got to come up with something more creative now. Yeah. Well, stay tuned, y'all. Stay tuned on uh, Wellevator for any potential April Fool's pranks we might be concocting for you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 